I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, the host of this Cavalier and NBA podcast, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, but more importantly, a lifelong Cavalier fan, a lot to be a fan of lately. Now today feels like a bit of a dark day. I witnessed in the span of two games, both against the same opponent, the Boston Celtics, my favorite game of the season, followed by what could only be described as the most demoralizing game of the season. Now, I don't think it was the worst for me. I thought about this long and hard. What was worse? A game in which we saw Evan Mobley go down with an injury, which at least at the time, it didn't look that serious, but apparently it will cause him to miss two to four weeks based on the news that was revealed today through an MRI that he received this morning. Evan Mobley is now out of the lineup. That is terrible news moving forward. But in terms of the game yesterday, despite the fact that he went 0 for 11, I actually felt okay about the team effort. At the end of the fourth quarter, they were still right there, despite losing the game. Now, the game against Phoenix, I think that was my most disappointing game of the season. Because from the middle of the second quarter on, we saw Ayton take advantage of Mobley. And even though Mobley was 0 for 11 last night, Horford played excellent defense as well against him. I liked everything that we saw out of Horford. He certainly still has a lot to contribute if he can stay on the floor. But last night was a bad night for Evan Mobley. It was a terrible night in terms of his health, but the team fought and stayed in it. And that's a theme that we keep seeing throughout this season, which that's why last night, I'm not going to say it was the worst night of the season for me. Allen should be coming back. Lowry should be coming back. Love should be coming back. We need to weather the storm. A common theme for the Cavaliers throughout the course of this last two seasons. Injuries have mounted, and we already knew we were going to be without Sexton, but at least in the front court, our issues appear to be somewhat short-term. Because while we will lose Mobley, we could be gaining three guys to help Dean Wade. Poor Dean Wade. It's going to be a lot of him. It's going to be some taco if these guys don't get back soon. But the Phoenix game, who we will have a chance to avenge. Coming up, although it will be difficult, that was a frustrating one for me. And maybe it was compounded by the fact that against the Lakers and then the Suns and back-to-back opponents, we saw huge collapses in the second half where the games didn't even feel competitive. Whereas even last night, in a loss, and the same can be said for the Wizards' loss a few games prior, the Cavs battled the whole way. It just didn't fall their way at the end. And last night, they were doing it against long odds with so few guys in the rotation. But before we look ahead to what's on the horizon, let's just look at these last two games because I think we've seen some things that are both very positive and troubling for the Cavaliers. And let's begin with the negative because I'm a piece of shit and that's what I'm going to do here. But that's actually the reason why is because I think there's more positives than there are negatives. But some of these negatives shouldn't even feel bad about because we can't control. First, glaring, obvious, negative, Evan Mobley is hurt. Certainly not what you want to see. I do think it's fortunate it's only two to four weeks, and now we'll get a chance to see Jared Allen completely unleashed because he's going to have to carry the load, not just defensively, but we're going to need a lot more from him offensively. Here is a negative that's more of a predictive one, a concern. One of the worst things 
in last night's loss to the Celtics was that in the void of Allen and Mobley both being out of the lineup for, well, Allen the whole game, Mobley large stretches of the game, is that without the gravity of those lob threats, Garland's job got far more difficult. One of the positives we've seen in this early season is that Garland has been playing like a seasoned vet in late games. He's made a lot of buckets in clutch situations or correct decisions, which resulted in buckets during the fourth quarter. And I think it's been one of the big factors in why the Cavs are more competitive over the course of this season than they've been the previous season. But a lot of that can be attributed directly to the gravity that Mobley and Allen have in drawing in defenders to give him more space for those floaters in the mid-range, to give him the option of throwing the lob if the defender comes to him, but taking the shot if they sag off of him. And the same can be said for Rubio. Rubio, of course, a far less efficient shooter than Garland, not the guy you want taking tons of looks, open or otherwise, but that's the role he's playing right now. Last night, with both Jared Allen and Mobley out of the lineup, we saw how difficult it was in Boston to get what I would call quality looks. What Osman and Rubio did, tip of the hat. Rubio made some buckets. He was aggressive. Not many games are you going to shoot 20 times. And Osman got 17 looks. That's 37 shots for two guys who are backups. Well, Rubio started yesterday. But they're guys who, when healthy, will be slotted in as backups. That is a big offensive load being carried outside of the traditional guys. You had 11 shots, none of which went in for Mobley. You had 15 shots for Garland. He had a lot of attention paid to him. And Rubio and Osman were indiscriminately chucking. Ricky Rubio this year is presently averaging 14.7 points a game, just shy of 15. He is one of seven Cavaliers in double digits. Lowry, Osman, Allen, Mobley, Sexton, Garland, all of them averaging north of 10 points a game, and Kevin Love just on the outside at 9.9 points per game. That is true distribution, which I think we should all be rooting for. It is a far more effective system in terms of leading to wins than putting the scoring burden solely on the shoulders of Colin Sexton. But one of the things we've seen is Ricky Rubio. He's leading the Cavs in second-half scoring with over 9 points per game, 9.1 points per game in the second half. Certainly not something any of us were expecting from a guy who was slotted in to be the backup point guard. Now, Sexton getting hurt contributes to that. But a troubling sign in terms of Sexton has been his efficiency has been drastically different between the first and second half of games. Colin Sexton is the leading scorer amongst all Cavaliers in the first half, averaging 9.3 points per game, doing it on 51% from the floor, by the way, which is extremely efficient. However, in the second half, he's seen a dramatic drop-off in his efficiency, falling to less than 39% from the floor, and in the fourth quarter, Colin Sexton is the worst player on the team in terms of field goal percentage, falling to just north of 30% from the floor. So Sexton has had his late-game troubles this year. Also, his role has really kind of been jerked around in his defense. He hasn't even been on the floor at different times in the fourth quarter. But for those people who have looked at those games and wondered why Colin Sexton hasn't gotten the chance to play such a large usage role, I think you can look at the numbers and say, well, there's a case to be made that he's struggling. 
in this early part of the season, and now he's down with the injury. So he's not going to have a chance to right that ship till much later in the year. But Rubio is being pressed to play the hero. Bickerstaff has put a lot of faith in Ricky Rubio to be able to replicate some of the success that he had on the international stage in terms of looking for his shot far more aggressively. Now another player who has been exceptional compared to the previous season, Osman. This isn't new news. We've seen him show up time and time again off the bench, but what we're getting from Osman this year, 48% from the field and 42% from three, and he's even better in the second half of games as he's been able to shoot the three-pointer at a blistering 44%. His 2020 was an abomination. 37% from the field, 31% from three. Didn't even look like he could justify holding down a spot in a quality NBA team's rotation. But this season, to jump his efficiency 10% from the field and 12% from three, it's only a 14-game sample. But you have to love what we're seeing out of Osman. He's more impactful in four less minutes a game than he was averaging last year. Because the high water mark for Osman, 2019, the first year of LeBron's absence, where he scored 11 points per game, but he did it relatively efficiently, 44% from the floor, 38% from three. It looked like he was going to grow into this larger role. Of course, then he was extended. He got the four years, $32 million, had a great preseason in 2020, and fell off a cliff. But now, maybe this is the ascent. He is still a young player. This is a guy who's only 26 years old. In a winning environment, we're seeing him reap the benefits that when he had LeBron alongside of him, he looked big in certain moments as a complimentary player. And now with more talent, this is a return to form. I don't think it's realistic that he's going to sustain shooting nearly 50% from the floor, but I absolutely love what we're getting out of that bench unit of Rubio, Osman, and Kevin Love. And if you want to count Markinen as a bench player, although I think he will slide right back into the starting lineup upon his return, I guess time will tell. And I don't want to dwell on this as a negative, but I'm not totally sold on Okoro. I think he had a very good night in limiting... Bradley Beal to an awful performance the night that his grandmother died, and I thought he competed. I think the best thing for him is going to be what we're seeing Osmond benefit from, in that last year he was forced into way too big of a role too early. I don't like the narrative of, well, we need to develop his ball handling more, and we need to make him secondary ball handler. I don't ever want to see that. That is not Okoro's role, and he's far too limited as a player. Okoro has somehow regressed offensively. Now a sub-40% shooter at 37%, and his three-point percentage is an abysmal 14%. Last year, it was terrible. It was 29%. But this year, I mean, there were stretches where Andre Drummond was making more than 14% of his threes. So those are some of the negatives. And while I had originally intended to structure this as concerning signs and then things that I was positive about, I've kind of been just weaving them together during this monologue here. Concerning things, having our guards have to play without our big men, but that would apply to any team. Okoro and his development, also a bit troubling. And Colin Sexton, in a limited sample, his efficiency late in games was troubling. I think a minor one, I guess if you wanted to throw in one more thing to watch, it would be Markinen improving his efficiency. But impactfully speaking, 
I think Markkanen has been a positive because he's contributed so much more in other facets of the game than I ever expected. Much better floor game than I realized he had and contributing defensively and with the group rebounding in a way that I think has made up for a lot of the shooting struggles he's faced early in the season. Now, I mixed some positives in there, those, of course, being Ricky Rubio embracing a larger role and seemingly doing it with success. Osman returning to the best version of Osman that we've seen probably since he's been a Cavalier in the early part of this season. And Garland, along with that tandem of bigs, shows some real star potential. When fully healthy, the offense, as run by Darius Garland early in this season, has been fantastic. And let's look at that a little bit closer. Now, in terms of advanced stats and their ranking in terms of offensive rating, it's not that impressive. The Cavs sit at 22nd in the league, but they are a positive net rating team, which is not a given. There are over half the teams in the league who fall into the negative net rating, meaning that their offense doesn't even outpace the level of defense that they're able to play. The Cavs, on the other hand, 11th right now in net rating, just outside of the top 10, which features some of the most prolific teams in the league. Denver Nuggets, Brooklyn Nets, the Clippers, the Sixers, the Wizards, of course, being the darling here, sixth overall in net rating, and the Warriors with the best team in the league at the moment, an offensive rating of 112, a defensive rating sub-100, making them the best defense in the league, far and away, of course, facing not the best overall competition. But the Cavs are able to take their seventh-ranked defense, and they've used it to string together a very formidable 9-6 and six record, in large part making up for any offensive struggles as they grow into a better team. Now, these are young guys. These are guys who will learn to play together. The offense only looks to improve. But one thing we know throughout NBA history is typically traditionally strong defenses sustain. There may be some room for variation depending on scheduling, but it is a great sign that the Cleveland Cavaliers are putting forth such a solid defensive effort during this early 15 games of the NBA season. Now, speaking of games, negative Nancy back as the Cavs take on, in their next four games, the Nets, the Warriors, the Nets again, and then the Phoenix Suns, all teams who have already reached double-digit victories. We're talking about two teams that sit atop the West with the Warriors and the Suns and the Brooklyn Nets who have ripped off Eight wins in their last 10, and they're playing tonight against the Warriors, so somebody has to lose there. But the point is, going into these games without Mobley and very likely without Allen tomorrow night, it will be very difficult for the Cavs to get past Thanksgiving over 500. They could conceivably have four losses in a row or one and three. One and three would put them in at 10 and nine. I think you'd have to feel pretty good about that going into a game against the Magic that they, in all likelihood, win. So we know what troubles lay ahead for the Cavs. They need Allen back as soon as possible. They need Markinen back as soon as possible. And they have to get through this next slate, not allowing it to shake their confidence. We're doing it shorthanded. We're facing the toughest part of our schedule, and this is still an exceptionally young team. One other positive that I wanted to get into, and that is centered around our man, Evan Mobley. Let's just take a look at what we've seen 
in this early season from the number three overall pick. There are two clear-cut favorites for the Rookie of the Year. The Cavaliers' Evan Mobley or the Raptors' Scotty Barnes. These two have put forth truly incredible starts to the season. Veteran-type performances from these players. Some of the most impressive stats that you can look at when you're analyzing who deserves to be Rookie of the Year. The first one, I would say, is efficiency and advanced stats. Now, those are always going to favor big men who tend to take their shots closer to the rim. They're typically going to be more efficient. But the efficiency specifically that we're seeing out of Mobley and Scotty Barnes is unbelievable. Scotty Barnes was supposed to be a bad offensive player, a guy who was extremely raw, a Draymond Green type, as it was being pitched to us as somebody who could pass a little, he could steal, he could block, but his offense was super raw, his jumper wasn't very good. Well, he has shown that he's farther along than people expected. And it's crazy to think, for two years in a row now, Florida State has put forth these lottery players who were sixth men, and they have contributed almost instantaneously. Patrick Williams had a solid rookie season with the Bulls, and now Barnes is putting together a truly fantastic rookie season with the Toronto Raptors. As of now, Scotty Barnes leads all rookies in scoring. 16 points a game, and he's doing it with incredible efficiency, considering the expectations that were laid upon him. 51% from the floor, leading all rookies who are getting more than 15 minutes a game. Second would be Herb Jones, who's known primarily as a defensive player, but is shooting a respectable 50% from the floor. Again, not taking a lot of attempts, less than six a game. Of the high-usage rookies, it goes like this. Barnes at 51%, Evan Mobley, 49%, Franz Wagner down in Orlando, who has exceeded expectations considerably. He is shooting 44.5%, so 45% from the floor. But beyond that, rebounding. I did not expect him to be as good at getting on the glass as he has been. And both Barnes and Mobley are averaging over eight rebounds a game. Now here's where things really start to stratify. Mobley is leading all rookies in block shots. The only rookie averaging over one block a game at 1.6. Shen Goon down in Houston, he's the next closest. Giddy and Barnes both tied with him, but those are guys who average something along a half a block a game. Scoring, Barnes, 16 points. Mobley, 15 points. Duarte's up there. Jalen Green is up there. Franz Wagner is up there. Kate Cunningham is starting to creep up. But those are all guys you expected to score a lot because they are facilitating guards who will have their hands on the ball. Not Wagner, not Duarte, but Cade, Jalen Green, and Suggs all would have the opportunity to score quite a bit because they would have the ball in their hands quite a bit. There is a clear 1-2, and two, 1A and 1B as far as rookies primed to win the Rookie of the Year award. Now with Mobley out for two to four weeks, Scotty Barnes has a chance to create some separation. But another factor which may work against him is the fact that Siakam is back in the fold now. I don't know that we can expect Scotty Barnes to sustain the same level of impact that he's been having, at least statistically speaking, with OG Ananobi, with Van Vliet back in the mix. I know he missed a game. But at full strength, Siakam, Ananobi, Van Vliet, and Barnes, that's a lot of ball to be spread around. I don't really have a problem either way with who people decide they think is the favorite 
to win Rookie of the Year as of now, because I'm fairly confident that over the course of the season, assuming Evan Mobley comes back and he doesn't have any lingering injury issues, his play has increased exponentially over the course of the early season in terms of impact and in terms of aggressiveness and usage to the point where I think we can expect more and more for Evan Mobley to score more points than Scotty Barnes consistently over the remainder of the rest of the season. And defensively, he's just a more impactful player. So if that comes with winning, if they're outpacing the Raptors in terms of team performance, if Mobley's outpacing them in terms of defensive impact, and if he's outpacing them offensively by the end of the year, that's a clean sweep. Cade Cunningham also picking it up more as time goes along here. Jalen Green, very inefficient, unfortunately. This is a guy who's shooting 36% from the floor. He's a sub-30% three-point shooter. I don't care if he scores 20 a game. If he does it on those numbers, he's going to have a hard time beating out an Evan Mobley who averages 15 and 8 on good efficiency. Could it happen? Sure. Should it happen? Probably not. But the must-watch rookies at this point are Scotty Barnes, Evan Mobley. Exceeding expectation guys are Duarte and Wagner down in Orlando. And the guys that are the volume dudes who are just kind of finding their way for all three of them, I would say, is Jalen Green, Cade Cunningham, and Jalen Suggs. Suggs was expected to be this impactful rookie, but what we're really seeing in Orlando is Cole Anthony has broken out unbelievably in his second year. A guy who's averaging something around 20 points a game with six rebounds and five assists in just year two out of North Carolina. A very inefficient shooter last year has raised his field goal percentage closer to 44%, and by becoming a more efficient player, he was always a guy that could fill up the stat sheet, but with the opportunity he has there with the Magic, that is a second-year player to watch. One other story I wanted to touch on this week, that is my Cavs stuff. Just general NBA things. We need to talk about Iguodala and his relationship with Kyrie Irving. This is a man, I don't know what happened between these two, but this love affair, and it might be a one-way love affair. I've never heard Iggy even mentioned by Kyrie. But twice now in the past few months, Iggy has gone on this Kyrie love campaign when he's been pressed for comments publicly. First, on The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne, when being questioned about how much LeBron's block still impacts him, he dismissed it by saying, well, we can't forget about Kyrie. Kyrie's amazing, man. Let's throw a little love fest for Kyrie, shall we? Which seemed weird at the time, but I just chalked it up to deflecting attention away from his negative uh, memory of losing a championship to the Cavs. And I thought, well, if Kyrie's legacy grows, maybe it diminishes the importance of that block LeBron had on uh, Iggy and I guess it makes sense in that regard. But now, recently, the NBA released their top 75 of all-time list, and Iggy went out of his way to make the conversation about Kyrie Irving, who really has no place in the discussion about people left off the NBA's 75th anniversary team. Iggy tweeted, and this is a quote, So y'all saying Kyrie Irving ain't top 75? I agree, dot, dot, dot. He top 20 at least. An insane take which, of course, sent NBA Twitter into a rage. And he was pressed on that during an interview with Sam Amick of The Athletic. And he said the following when being asked to defend his take that Kyrie Irving is a top 20 talent of all time. He, he doubled down. He said that Kyrie Irving is not only a top 20 talent of all time, but a top four point guard with the only guys 
ahead of him being Magic Johnson, Steph Curry, and Isaiah Thomas. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, that seems kind of high. He must be leaving out people, right? Of course, other point guards that then would fall below Kyrie Irving, logically, would be Chris Paul, Steve Nash, Oscar Robertson, uh, Jason Kidd. He even mentions our boy Mark Price later. I'll, I'll get to that quote. So here was how he defended that statement. Magic, Steph, and Isaiah Thomas are the only guys that I will allow you to say are better than Kyrie. Chris Paul, I'm not mad at, but I got Kyrie. But people will argue that Kyrie hasn't played enough games. Now, when people say statements like that, but people will argue that such and such, that means here's a valid point to discredit my opinion. Kyrie hasn't played enough games. Kyrie played an incredible NBA Finals in 2016 that we won. And the shot was huge. The general play was huge. The 40-point games were huge. But he also hasn't sustained any level of success without a true transcendent player alongside of him in LeBron James. Didn't do much of anything in terms of winning or playing winning basketball when the Cavs were without LeBron James. In fact, lost so much that the Cavs ended up with multiple number one picks. Anthony Bennett, Andrew Wiggins, him. Then he goes to Boston, misses one entire playoff run, and misses a second playoff run in terms of the success side of it. He does play with the Boston Celtics in his second season with them, and he's atrocious in the Eastern Conference Finals, shooting below 40% from the field in the Eastern Conference Finals, and basically the biggest factor as to why they lost. Then he goes to Brooklyn, misses the playoff run that we just saw with Kevin Durant and James Harden, but this really isn't about resume, because Iggy doesn't hang his hat on resume. He says that it's not about accolades. People forget, this is a quote, people forget because they look at, you know, accolades. Kobe Bryant only had one MVP. Is Steve Nash better than Kyrie because he had two? So that's the accolades part. Is Steve Nash better than Kobe, rather, because he had two? So that's the accolades part, you know? Nah, man, that doesn't make you better. I agree that accolades and resume are only part of it, but they are a part of it. And while I would never argue that Kobe is better than LeBron because he has five titles to LeBron's four, I don't think that that's the crux of the argument. Nobody is saying that Steve Nash is better than Kyrie Irving solely because he has two MVPs. They're saying it because he had sustained success for longer. He impacted winning for longer. He wasn't a detriment to his team or his teammates. He lifted teammates up as opposed to submarining them the way that Kyrie Irving has. Now, those things, maybe they don't matter to Iguodala and to a lot of modern-day NBA players because they're very individualistic in how they view the game and the talents within it. And maybe from just a pure talent and untapped potential standpoint, Kyrie Irving's skill set, you could argue, is top four. But it almost feels blasphemous to put that man in the same breath as Steph Curry, Magic Johnson, and Isaiah Thomas given what we've seen from him over the course of his career, both things he can control and things he couldn't. The perpetual industry and injuries, the regular losing before LeBron came back to Cleveland, the way that he submarined what was looking like a high-potential team with both Boston and then what's happening now with the Brooklyn Nets, where he has a chance to win a title 
and he's putting whatever his own individual reasoning is above the ability to win that title with Kevin Durant and James Harden in the prime of their careers. Now, maybe that doesn't factor in for most people, but it's certainly a consideration for me. I would have a hard time 20 years from now being like, well, who's the best point guards of all time? Kyrie Irving, the guy that willingly sat out a title run because COVID. I don't know why Iggy loves this guy so much. You would think, I don't know if Kyrie Irving even cares about you. The way that Scottie Pippen has this obsession with Michael Jordan, that's how it feels. The one-sided obsession from Iggy to Kyrie. Meanwhile, the only thing Kyrie cares about is himself. Similar to, well, how Michael Jordan is sort of viewed. Maybe it's some sort of player union bond or something, but regardless. There's some sort of weird correlation. I was listening to the mismatch with Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon. And Chris Vernon was talking about how a player like Jalen Green exists in this situation like Houston, where if he's allowed to just play reckless, me-first basketball for too long, it could hamper his development as a player. Sometimes I think the same for these guys who exist in these truly great situations like Golden State, where Iggy and Draymond were on these incredible teams, incredibly well-coached, generational-type teams, and it's made them feel so confident in terms of their legacy in the game that they have zero discretion when it comes to just rolling out truly terrible takes because they know no matter how horrible the take is, it would be difficult for it to become a more memorable part of their career than being part of, say, the winningest regular season basketball team of all time or the team that gave up the first 3-1 lead in NBA Finals history. So fuck it. Say whatever you want because nobody's going to remember that in the long run. They're going to remember Draymond dick kicks. They're going to remember Iggy winning the most fraudulent Finals MVP in the history of Finals MVPs and all the crazy stuff they said in between. It's just going to get lumped into this situation where only people really paying attention are going to remember all the specific insane things like Kyrie Irving being a top 20 NBA player of all time that fall out of their mouths. Or the way that Draymond compared James Harden and Andre Drummond's situations last year, which made zero sense as well. But that's for another podcast. I've destroyed Iggy enough for seemingly no reason other than I just think his takes are terrible. This has been another episode of the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Please like, subscribe, follow along. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram at Fear the Fro Pod. We will be back with more Cavalier basketball, NBA basketball, another podcast, hopefully coming off a win against a tired back-to-back Brooklyn Nets squad without Kyrie, of course, because, well, Kyrie. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.